All right. Hello. Uh, welcome. Uh, we are here today with Dr. Rick Rupetti. Um, he is a professor at CUNY Kingsborough Community College. And um, I've known you for quite some time. I uh, definitely admire a lot of your work and um, have built a relationship not only as uh, you as my teacher, but also as a mentor and a friend. And um, I'm really happy that, you know, actually honored that you're with us for our first podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and usually I would hand this over to you, um, but you do something that I like very much, which you call street philosophy. So I'm going to go by your books and go by your methods and ask you to introduce yourself by first asking, who are you? Name, ethnicity, <laughs> occupation? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for having me here, by the way. And the pleasure is all yours. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so ethnicity. Uh, my father is Italian, and my mom was half Swedish and half Dutch. They were both born here, but their parents were not. Their parents were from Europe. My mom had nine pregnancies. Two of them were miscarriages. We had one crib death and six survivors. And um, I have... I had four sisters and one brother. One of my other sisters and my brother passed away. But it's a large Italian Catholic family. Um, Blue-collar father. My father was a merchant marine as a young man. And for the bulk of his, the rest of his working life, he was a moving man, helping people move. Um, blue-collar stuff. And he was also a member of the Teamsters Union. He was a union delegate, and um, he had a lot of dealings with people in the mafia who were infiltrating the unions back then. So that was that. As a kid, I grew up um, for about 10 years. Uh, we moved into the projects in Astoria, Queens, public housing projects when I was three, and we moved out when I was 13. Um, when we moved in, it was pretty mixed. When we moved out, um, there was maybe a handful of white families left, mostly black and some Latinos in the projects. And it really just got racially dangerous for us to stay there. Um, I experienced a tremendous amount of bullying and violence and aggression and robberies and whatnot that I was the victim of as a child on numerous occasions. So. I learned how to fight uh, before I became an adult and took martial arts training, um, which gave me a little bit of an advantage in the ring, um, having street, you know, some streetwise fighting skills. I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of fights. I mean, I think I had a fight at least once a week, but I had like frightening, conflict, confrontational encounters on an almost daily basis in the projects. Um, so that's my that's that's like the uh, early years of of me. Um, I'm a high school dropout. I dropped out in my senior year of high school, even though I was a kind of effortless A student. I dropped out because entering the final semester, uh, I realized I they didn't give me enough classes to graduate, and um, I needed like a hygiene class or something, something in the gym department. And when I went over there. The dean, um, who didn't like me because I was a kind of troublemaker, he enjoyed telling me that I couldn't have the classes that I needed to graduate. Um, you know, that's oh. karma. And, um, you know, I'm going, I hope I'm not going into too many details about no. my background, but it's the kind of person not I am. Is made, you know, who I am is based on what I've experienced in life. 
And I remember him telling me, well, then you're just going to have to go to night school or summer school. And I said, well, I'm not going to either. And he said, he literally broke out into a song. And he said, well, then I'll see you in September. <laughs> and I got so angry that I quit school that day. My parents couldn't talk me out of it. Even though I was like an A student, right. um, I got my GED, tried to go to college that fall. That fall, CUNY, which was free up until then, mm -hmm. just started charging tuition. And I didn't have the money saved, even though I was working. But I wasn't eligible for financial aid because I had a job with a certain amount of income. And mm -hmm. um, so I couldn't afford to go. So I just didn't go. And eight years later, I decided after driving tractor trailers and doing all sorts of blue collar jobs um, that I had enough money that I could afford to pay for my tuition. And I finally went back to uh, college. I had postponed going to college, too, because my father, when I was, you know, 18 or whatever it is when I finished high school, wouldn't pay for my tuition unless I had a concrete plan. He said, I'm not going to pay for you to go and take liberal arts. You know, if you know what you're going to do, like accounting or something, you know, realistic, you know, I'm not paying for you to sit around and think. So um, and that influenced me because I, I kept postponing going until I could figure out what I wanted to do when I went to college. He had that influence on me. So finally, um, I thought I would go for computer science. And um, actually, before I even decided to go, one of the triggers was, I'll tell you this cute little story, it's a truck driving thing. I was driving fuel oil trucks at the time, and I was at the depot where you bring the empty truck to fill up. I'm standing on top of the truck, they have these manhole covers up there, and you pull this big chute over it, and you lower it into the truck, and you fill up thousands of gallons of oil into the truck. And there was a guy on the next truck who I knew from the neighborhood, which was Bensonhurst, where I lived for many, many years in Brooklyn. And he asked me, hey, did you go to the union meeting last night? And I said, no, we, we worked for a non-union company. So um, you have to have like maybe 30 trucks to be required to join the union, and my boss kept it at 29, so we wouldn't have to do that. And... Um, he said something like, yeah, you know, all these other young guys. I was in my mid-20s, so was he. He said, all these other young guys, all they wanted was a raise. Uh, I wanted more in my annuity and my retirement and all that. And I started thinking like, wow, you're already you're planning on doing this for the rest of your life? And then I thought, no, no, I, I can't keep that. I was making great money, um, but I just thought I can't. I have to go back to college. I have a brain, and I need to do something with it. So that, it was shortly after that that I decided to go back to college. Um, so I thought I'd go for computer science because that was something I was really interested in. Um, hadn't done math in like 10 years, though, because I only did math in the first two years of high right. school. Didn't do it in the last two years. Was out of school for eight years. And so I think the highest math I did in high school was geometry. I passed the CUNY um, entrance exam, so I didn't have to take any remedial math. But whatever the next class was that they put me in, it was trig. I don't remember what it was. I had to keep going. I had my old high school math book. I had to keep going looking things up that I just had forgotten, equations and stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. simple formulas. And I was spending like three or four hours a night to do like what should have been 10 minutes worth of homework. And I got an A in the course, but I just realized you have to love what you do and it has to come naturally to you. And this is not coming naturally to me. And at the time, math was really required for computer science. Nowadays, you could get away with you know, with all this video, visual programming and everything. You couldn't do that back then. So I just said, okay, what am I going to do now? I fell in love with my philosophy class first semester. 
And I remember asking my professor, Jerome Stolnitz, very eccentric man, what could you do with this other than teach philosophy? He said, well, it's a good pre-law major, you know, arguing, debating, analyzing, reasoning. So I thought, oh, yeah, there's good money in law. It's prestigious. That's what I'll do. So I got a job. I got my foot in the door in a law firm, uh, working on the midnight shift in the photocopy department at Dirt Cheap. I think my salary went down to something like $300 a week, where I was making something like, more like $3,000 a week. And, um, but I didn't care about it. I just, it was more about the future. And so, um, but after going through college while working in the law firm for all those years, it took me five years to get my bachelor's degree. I started at Lehman College because I was living in the Bronx. I did one semester at Hunter. I didn't like it. And then I went to Brooklyn. I graduated from Brooklyn. But in the course of those five years, working in law firms with lawyers, I grew to hate lawyers, found them to be morally corrupt. Um, See, and I agree on that. And, uh, and then I just thought, oh, m man, you know, in my senior year, I was supposed to be applying to either law school or graduate school. It really took me a lot of reasoning and talking to my mentors two mentors that I had, both philosophy professors. One was Eric Steinberg, who told me his brother was a successful lawyer, made a lot of money, but never had time to spend it. Mm -hmm. And my other uh, philosophy professor said that, um, well, if you're going to become an academic, you should probably get a law degree first because academia is very bloody and you want to be able to defend yourself. But he was being sarcastic. But uh, I just decided I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go to grad school for uh, philosophy, and that's what I did. Um, so... A couple of other things about who I am. I've been practicing yoga and meditation since I was about 15, which is a long time, multiple decades. I won't say exactly how many. But, um, and I've been teaching it for, for many, many years. Ever since I started teaching philosophy in college, which was 1991 when I was still a grad student, I would teach my students meditation in the classroom. I thought it was like kind of show and tell because it is a kind of Asian philosophy practice. And so I would use that as my excuse to bring it into the classroom and give it to my students. Most of my classes I've done that in. Um, sometimes it happened that it just didn't work out. But, and since the year 2000, I've been teaching yoga on a weekly basis in a variety of places like um, continuing ed programs, um, uh, community centers, some college courses, and um, what is it, um, a wellness center, uh, mostly a wellness center in Brooklyn. Um, and I occasionally uh, would do it here and there and everywhere else. Um, yeah, so that's the general um, background for me. I think this is slipping there, sorry. Okay. Is that, uh, is that enough for starters of who I am? Is I could go on and on. I could talk for three hours about who I am. Well, that's what I do love about you. Um, you know, that was just question one, by the way. Yeah. Um, and you are definitely a storyteller. Uh, they're good stories. Um, well, I will now move on to your second question of street philosophy. What's one belief, principle, or motto that reflects a core part of your philosophy? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you've got to love what you do. And that's what you well, That's career advice. Right. So, yeah. okay. So, what's one belief, principle, or motto? Well, um, I do love to teach philosophy because I'm very philosophical by nature, but here's one core philosophical belief that I have. Um, it falls into the category, the philosophical category of epistemology. Yep, here. 
Pardon? You didn't look here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, epistemology is the study of knowledge. You know, all the different areas of science are areas, specific areas of human knowledge and human inquiry. Like physics studies the nature of reality. What, what claims are known about physical reality, like electromagnetism and whatnot. Chemical chemistry uh, is about a chemical level of reality. Biology about living organisms and systems and so on. Psychology is knowledge about the human mind. Epistemology is knowledge about knowledge. It's the study of the nature of knowledge itself. Like, um, are there criteria that need to be satisfied for anything to count as knowledge? And are those criteria ever satisfied? And how could you know without being circular about what knowledge itself is? So that's the, the field of philosophy called epistemology. It's one of the three main fields. Um, the other two main fields are metaphysics, which is the study of the nature of reality itself, what kinds of criteria might have to be satisfied for us to say something exists or is real. Um, and then the third category is called axiology, which is the study of values and value judgments like aesthetics, ethics, economics. These all involve value judgments. Okay, so um, one belief that I have, which is a philosophical belief, I said it falls into the category of epistemology. And I would say that um, it's pretty complicated, but I believe that our sense perceptions are where we get all of our information about reality. And then we form concepts based on our perceptions. We classify and categorize things that are like and unlike, and we give them names um, in language, like dog. The word dog refers to everything that is a dog, and it excludes everything that is not a dog, right? So there, every, every single concept has an inclusion and an exclusion criterion built into it. So animals have perceptions, but they might not have concepts, right? So based on early experience, our minds are looking for patterns of like and unlike or same and different and creating a hierarchy of conceptual categories that, that we use to structure experience. So dog, mammal, animal, living thing, thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Process versus thing. So we've, you know, so there's conceptual activity. And I also believe that there's an element of volition that we use, which is intentionality or uh, purpose. Um, when we're forming concepts, we are trying to capture reality in our concepts. We, we want to make distinctions that have real differences in the world. So, I mean, I might make a concept like um, your neos and you're sitting in the chair. If I'm an infant, I might see you and the chair as united, as one object. Hmm. And I'll have a hypothesis about that object, right? But then when you leave the chair, I realize that you're separate from the chair, right? Or a mother and its milk and so on. So there's this differentiation and integration of things that go together and don't in reality. So sense perceptions is the objective reality that's the test for our concepts. Okay. And if you don't have the volition, the intention to track reality by using appropriate concepts, you might not form them appropriately. You might create concepts that don't have any bearing in reality. Reality is a test on the validity of your concepts. And 
the last part of it, the last yeah. part of this, yeah, mm-hmm. this is um, my epistemology. It's not, I can't take full credit for this, um, mm-hmm. but I've learned it from, you know, all philosophers stand on the, the shoulders of previous philosophers. Right. Concept formation builds on perceptual knowledge, but then reason is the tool by which we test whether or not our concepts are capturing reality. Huh. Reason. So reason is the primary means of knowledge. You can have all that information like animals do without having any knowledge. And you can form concepts without having knowledge. They may or may not apply to the world. Um, reason is the tool that you use mm-hmm. to, like with scientific method, uh, you've got five things going on, you move one of them and something changes. So you know that that's an independent variable. Right. Right. So but that's what we do when we when we test our concepts, even as young minds, as infants. Right. We learn what what concepts are working and which ones don't. So that's a long winded answer that (laughs) I believe reason is our primary epistemic tool. The next question is actually (laughs) also answered by this is why do you believe that? It makes but, sense to me. It makes sense yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, but that's not a, a that's not a really good philosophical um, answer. Right. And that's what I tell my students, you know, OK, that's what you believe. Mm-hmm. Right. Why do you believe it? Right. Right. So but that, I've already given you a kind of exactly a, a answer to the second part of the question in constructing my first answer by saying that, you know, there's a sequence to how it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we get sense right. perceptions as infants. They're a, they're a kind of blurring swirl of Jackson Pollock kind of information that's just floating around. We don't know what's connected with what. And we test things uh, as we get intelligent and notice patterns to see if our concepts, you know, or just when you're trying to teach a child colors from a, a little booklet or animal names from a booklet and they, they get them right, but then they get them wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And so through the process of correction, you re- you realize, oh, no, OK, small little furry pet could be a dog, but it could also be a cat. So right. that cat is not a dog. Right. So that's there's a process of correction built into concept formation being tested by reality. So the reason why I believe it is because the evidence for that model is ubiquitous in all of my experience. Yeah, I, I think it's massively confirmed by all of my experience. <laughs> that, that, that Does that make sense? sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. As a great example, it's like um, I can compare that to a uh, recent um, experience with working on my niece's homework. My generation of solving a math problem, whether multiplication or something similar, I was taught to, you know, take the numbers, add the zero, you know, in multiplication and go down from there. Now, the, nowadays, it's, it's different. And then later, I was also shown a way of how Japanese do it with uh, a particular aspect of drawing grid lines. The grid lines. The grid lines, yeah. grid lines and it still works. Yeah. So there's different ways of getting to the answer. Right. And but the answers are the same. But the answers and, are the same. And the methods can be proven to be valid. Yes. Right. Which makes them objective. Correct. We're in an age of subjectivism. So the philosophy that I just enunciated is called objectivism. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thank you for the explanation. Um, so I guess the final question of your street philosophy uh, is what question would you like to ask a philosoph- um, philosophical counselor like yourself? What question would I want to ask? A philosophical counselor. A philosophical counselor? Yeah. Okay, well, one of the things that I struggle with a lot mm-hmm. is I've had a lot of what people might call EHEs, exceptional human experiences, 
or what are more traditionally called mystical experiences or even paranormal experiences. In fact, I think I, I could have mentioned this in the Who Am I uh, in my little bio that I gave at the beginning. Um, the very first time I got interested in <clears throat> yoga or meditation was I was flipping through channels watching TV. I was a 15-year-old boy mm -hmm. with, you know, with his hormones raging, and I saw two beautiful women in leotards in like seductive-looking poses, and I just stopped the TV chat. That we used to turn the channels by hand back mm -hmm. then, not by button. It was his knobs, you know, and, and he uh, just gave away the my decades. age. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and um, yes, these two beautiful women were in these seductive poses. And I realized after a few moments, it was some kind of exercise class. And there was this man who looked Asian, like he looked Chinese or something like that. But his name was Richard Hittleman. It turned out that the show was called Richard Hittleman's Yoga for Health. It was a yoga class, and I had heard about it, but I didn't know anything about it. But I used to watch a uh, Jack LaLanne had an exercise show. He was the that gym in, uh, that used to be called Bally's for many years. Right. Was previously Jack LaLanne's, and he sold it to Bally's. I don't know something. I, you might have heard of him. He's one of these old timers from pre. Like I was a little kid when Jack LaLanne had a TV show with exercise. But I used to watch his exercise show and do it. So I thought, okay, this is an exercise show. So I started to do it. And I'm doing all the yoga poses and breathing exercises. And at the end, they had us lying flat on our back in deep relaxation and. He was guiding us with visualizations and breathing techniques and whatnot, just to have us in a state of deep relaxation. And I had an out-of-body experience, which was mind-blowing. I mean, I literally felt my consciousness pop out of my head like a gas filling the ceiling area in my bedroom, from which I was looking down at my body. And I remember thinking that, wow, there really is like life after death. This is what it's like to be a spirit out of the body, like the genie out of the bottle or something. And then I thought, how do I get back in? I got paranoid and I was like, went right back into my body. But, uh, <laughs> but it really, it blew my mind. And I went out and got my hands on every book that I could about meditation and yoga. I taught myself within a matter of months. I managed to find through a friend who said, oh, I know this, our girlfriend, Patty, has uh, a meditation teacher in the village. And I said, I'm going. And you know, she was a woman who had spent like 15 years in India or something. And I just really got so into it that the more I practiced meditation, the more I kept having like weird mystical type experiences. Now, that's what led me to philosophy. But then, you know, trying to figure out, because I mean, I was having precognitive dreams that were so complex that I mean, I know the um, philosophical explanation or the scientific explanation is normally to dismiss those things as a function of coincidence and probabilities. So you've got billions of human beings who have hundreds of dreams every night, every half hour, you're cycling through dreamless to dreaming, dreamless to dreaming, right? But you only remember the, the, when you woke up in the last cycle, if you woke up from when you were dreaming, but we all have dreams all the time. And the, the model that the scientists use to dismiss precognition is when you think you've really seen the future and it's not just a coincidence, is to say that, well, take a deck of 52 cards, right? If you shuffle them and deal them out, they're going to be four aces and whatever. There's statistics and probabilities about how often those things will happen. Well, if you take billions of dreams every night, part of the function of dreams is to try to make sense of experience, but to try to predict experience. You were processing data and trying to see patterns and whatnot. 
So the brain is going to generate hits, just like it'll get four aces, you know? And that's the explanation. It's just coincidence and probability. But if it happens to you, it's hard to accept that, particularly if you have a dream, a precognitive dream that's got like a hundred details right, and somebody else that you know had the exact same dream the same night that you did, mm -hmm. or something like that, and then everything comes true, right? That like that's like hitting the lottery like, like ten thousand times in a row or something like. So it's not probabilistic, really. Um, that's my reasoning, but. Now, as a philosopher, there's a principle called Occam's razor. I don't know if you ever learned it, but it goes something like that. And scientists use this all the time, mm -hmm. named after a fellow named William of Occam. If you have two hypotheses that could both equally well explain the same data, whatever that is, you should always prefer the simpler explanation. That's the popular version of Occam's razor. Always go with the simpler explanation. And, but by simpler, that involves a lot of complex kind of meta-level principles and thinking in science and in philosophy like, okay, what's a simpler theory? Uh, if either of two competing theories, if one of them requires you to accept more metaphysical assumptions than the other one does, if this one has fewer metaphysical assumptions than that one, then you should go with that one. That's the simpler one. So here's a, an example of metaphysical assumptions. Physical things exist. Here's a more complicated metaphysical assumption. Non-physical things exist. Supernatural things exist. Ghosts and gremlins and deities exist, right? Those are more uh, complex metaphysical assumptions. Those are greater. So if you've got a scientific naturalistic way to explain a phenomenon, right, and a supernatural way, right? Occam's razor says always favor the natural explanation because we don't know if anything supernatural really exists. We don't have concrete evidence for it. That's a metaphysical principle. The epistemological principle that would favor the same conclusion is just that the physical explanation is less likely to be wrong than the supernatural one, right? So and, and related ideas are uh, which, which of the two th hypotheses jibes more, is more consistent with everything else that we already know, and that would favor the naturalistic explanation over the supernaturalistic one, right? Mm -hmm. So when it, this is a long-winded explanation to my question for the philosophical counselor. <laughs> now, because of Occam's razor, I know that the naturalistic explanation from my precognitive and other experiences is the preferable one. So as a rational being who accepts an objectivist epistemology and so mm -hmm. on, I should favor the naturalistic explanation. But as the person who had that experience, it's hard for me to say that I don't think anything really different happened to me. Like, I really believe that something happened in my experiences that is not really credible on the basis of the natural explanation, even though logically or rationally I could see that Occam's razor favors that explanation. Mm -hmm. So, But it almost feels to me like I have to be dishonest with myself if I say to myself, okay, I don't think those things really happened. Um, maybe my memory is wrong, I exaggerated it, or maybe, you know, somebody tricked me and whispered in my ear when I was sleeping, it was a gag. I mean, I could come up with all sorts of what we call error theories, which would explain why it seems legitimate, but it's some kind of confusion, error, mistake, or just a lie, right? Some people lie about their experiences, right? So 
that's been the philosophical challenge of my life, that I've had those deep experiences that have shaped me. They make me believe that the physical model of the cosmos is incomplete. It's not a complete explanation, and that whatever that is that happened to me is legitimate. I would love to ask a philosophical counselor to spend a year with me <laughs> trying to figure out whether or not my thinking about this is appropriate um, or how I might think better about it. Well, I'm not <laughs> sure how many people are watching right now um, or will be watching this, uh, the, this first show, but we'll get it out there. If there's a philosophical counselor, counselor who wants to spend a year with you, <laughs> we'll try to find one for you. <laughs> well, I'm a member of the American Philosophical Practitioners Association, the APPA, and it's a licensing body. That, well, they're the ones who certify philosophical counselors. I'm a certified philosophical counselor. I know many of them. And um, at some of the workshops or trainings that we do, we will be each other's, you know, we'll have philosophical counseling sessions with mm -hmm. each other. And I've brought this issue. Um, but having a couple of uh, discussions about it has never been enough for me. So, yeah, I say a year. Um. <laughs> so what kind of responses did you get from uh, your Oh, I, I honestly don't remember. They are kind of more like, uh, you know, expressions of empathic uh, support and understanding or, you know, making, you know, giving me permission to maybe, you know, um, trust my instincts or make room for faith in my life, that sort of thing. And that's all good, but... Um, but it's nothing constructive or... Yeah, it doesn't really solve... Yeah, I want an intellectually complete, um, in-depth analysis of this kind of thing. <laughs> gotcha. Well, um, I... You definitely answered a lot of my questions that I had lined up for you, and that's, that's definitely a good thing. But I... Do you want to get back to what I started this podcast with? The four questions that you use for street philosophy. Okay. That's something that you've uh, come up with, um, especially given your background. I was going to ask you why street philosophy, but you you gave us, a, you shed a little light in your, in your, about your background that you did grow up in the streets a little bit and um, you, uh, you feel a connection to that. So could you tell us a little bit about what street philosophy is and uh, why this is, this is something that you utilize with everyday people? Sure. Well, I teach in a community college, as you know, because that's where I met you. Um, and in the philosophy program, I mean, we don't have a distinct pro. We do have a concentration in philosophy, but philosophy is um, it's an associate's or a two-year degree at the college where I teach. And we have no prerequisites for that reason. Um, there are some uh, disciplines there that do have prerequisites, and they might need them more than we do, but we, we don't. We don't have any really advanced classes in philosophy except the one that you took, which was for honors students only. That was a specialty course that students had to actually get a scholarship to get into that course, if you recall. But other than that, all of our courses are introductory. Um, and so I frequently have students but even when I taught, I mean, I've taught at Brooklyn College, uh, which is a four-year school. I've taught at Vassar College, which is a four-year school. Uh, LaGuardia I taught at, but that's also a two-year school. But I, even in the four-year schools, when you teach an intro-level class or a lower-level class, you get students who've never taken a philosophy course before, and usually they're freshmen, and so they're new to college, and they haven't really been indoctrinated or educated in philosophy 
Right. And I love arguing with them and challenging them and asking them questions, but I have to, I have to cover a curriculum in those classes. I have to teach them what epistemology is, what metaphysics is, what axiology is, and then there are problems in philosophy depending on what kind of philosophy class it is that I have to cover. If it's philosophy of religion, that's one thing. If it's modern philosophy, I have to cover things chronologically. If it's an ancient philosophy class, I have to go to Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all that stuff. But in the intro section of any course that I teach in the first few weeks, I'm arguing with students who've never really done philosophy before. And I find it extremely, that's the most enjoyable to me. I love that. And I've always felt and believed that these students are naturally philosophical. And excuse me, I even encourage them. I will frequently tell my students that I believe that all of us are naturally philosophical, that human beings are philosophical by nature, that children are naturally very philosophical, which is exhibited by their frequent use of the word, what word? Like. No. That's good, though. No. The word why. No. Why? Like is a good one because mm -hmm. if you can make comparisons, yeah. but why and, and no is a good one too because mm -hmm. then you're you're rejecting something. Right. To accept or reject something is to use your rational capacities as your reason. But um, the question why? Children want to understand. They want, why is the moon following us or whatever? Um, why can't I have my dessert first? Why can't I play before I do my homework? Uh, you know, whatever. Um, the question why is, a, is an appeal that seeks understanding. So philosophy is the quest for understanding. It is the search for wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Children have it, but when they get domesticated and socialized, they learn that uh, it's kind of socially inappropriate to keep asking why after a certain age for whatever reason. Some families might encourage that, but by and large, society kind of stops encouraging that when kids are around six or seven or whatever. They get annoying, maybe. They just keep saying why, 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 right, whatever. Right. Who knows? But um, I think that's part of human nature, and I love to see it when I have my introductory students. And whenever I've had a chance to talk to students and find out about their lives, like in my office hours or something like that, I think every student, well, at least growing up in Brooklyn, a lot of them are immigrants or they're poor, or they live in the ghetto or whatever it is. They have all kinds of challenges that they face. Just to be there, mm -hmm. they've had to conquer a lot of challenges just to make it to a public community college in Brooklyn after growing up in Brooklyn. But when I talk to them, any one of them could probably write a biography about their life, which would be interesting if they knew how to write a biography, right? Mm, right. So, that, like, I want to tap into that. And I, most philosophers, like, this goes back to Socrates. Socrates would talk to anybody on the street. He didn't have a university. His, one of his greatest, his, his greatest student, Plato, opened up the first university in the Western world. That was Plato, and it was called the Academy, and that's why academic subjects are called academic, named after Plato's Academy. Um, but Socrates called himself a gadfly and the midwife of ideas. He was a gadfly because he would zap people like a horsefly at the beach that keeps stinging you, you know, when you're trying to relax, because he would challenge people about what their beliefs are. What do you believe and why do you believe that? Um, but he was a midwife. He called himself a midwife of ideas. A midwife helps a woman to give birth, Socrates always felt that everybody has some wisdom in them, 
and he would question them and interrogate them and cross-examine their statements to help them give birth to their ideas. So they would try to define something. He would ask whatever a person's area of expertise was, like a priest, what is piety or holiness? A politician, what is justice, right? A poet would ask him about the meaning of one of their poems or something like that. So that he would try to tap into where, what, what they allegedly knew, what they were supposed to know, what they presumably tacitly knew, but might not have been able to articulate, and then they would attempt to articulate and define justice or piety or whatever, and he would get them to realize through his questioning that they didn't really know what they thought they knew. But he did believe that they knew something, and he would get them to at least eliminate false versions of what they thought they knew, and this is the Socratic method. Right. That's what philosophy is. So it's human nature, in my opinion. Everybody's philosophical. You don't have to, I mean, I have friends, uh, you know, I, like I grew up in a blue collar family in a blue collar milieu in a blue collar neighborhood. And, you know, first in the projects, which was really poor. And then in Bensonhurst, which was like mostly all immigrant Italians at the time. But anybody that I ever spoke to, if I had time to get into an interesting conversation, I find people to be filled with lots of knowledge and in good instincts. And, you know, if you just keep working with them, you'll get somewhere. You'll find something interesting. Now, I'm a trained philosopher, and I'm also a trained philosophical counselor, so I, I find it very rewarding. And I have a belief that anybody on the street is somebody that you could stop if they have the time and you capture their interest, that you could have an interesting philosophical discussion with them. Now, I haven't really been doing that on the street yet, uh, that's something that I want to do. But I've been doing it online and here and there and, you know, in various different minor venues. But I plan on eventually. I mean, I did it once. Um, the uh, American Philosophical Association and the Public Philosophy Network jointly supported um, this fellow, Ian Olasev is his name. He's at the CUNY Graduate Center, and he just came out with a book. He doesn't call it street philosophy. I think he calls it Ask a Philosopher. Right? And we set up a booth at Columbus Circle in Manhattan in the mm -hmm. subway station in the food court area, like this yeah. little walkway. We set up a booth with a big sign, Ask a Philosopher, and we put out like three bowls with like, like fortune cookie things rolled up, little philosophy questions that they, if they didn't have a question of their own, they could pick a question out of the question bowl or they could pick a, a thought experiment out of the thought experiment bowl. And then I think the third bowl was just candy or something like that. Uh, and people came by and they would stop and there were two or three of us sitting there and they would just ask you a question or they would ask one out of the bowl or whatever. And people loved it. It was really fun. And they, we've, he's been doing that a lot for the last few years and he just came out with a book about it, um, Ask a Philosopher. So I'm glad I, I forgot about that. It's something I do want to plug because um, I have the book, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> but I know the guy, I've done it. I'm sure right. I'm, I'm probably, I might be mentioned as one of the examples in there for all I know. I don't know. Um, you mentioned that you um, have done this online several times. Yeah. Um, that's you do provide a few services, few very interesting services um, as a philosophical counselor. Right. I know that you uh, provide a Socratic uh, dialogue uh, service um, to help people figure out, you know, their philosophical questions and themselves. Um, you, do you want to speak a little bit about uh, some of the stuff that you, you know, some of the services that you provide? Okay. Um. Long well, as philosophical question. counseling itself is kind of like psychotherapy, only um, 
one of the there were a few people globally who are responsible for creating the discipline of philosophical counseling. Um, in in Europe, there's one or two people. There's one in Israel. I, I forget these people's names. I, I know the one closest to me. The one who's mostly responsible for it in the United States is a fellow named Lou Marinoff. He's a professor of philosophy at City College in CUNY, um, and he does he leads the trainings uh, that certify people to do philosophical counseling. So he I mentioned him because he calls it therapy for the sane. Um, yeah, but like that's a little unfair to psychology too because I try to encourage people who have certain kinds of emotional, social, psychological problems to go for psychological counseling. I, I, was, I almost became a gestalt psychotherapist um, when I was in graduate school. I was going um, for those, sorry to cut you, cut you off, for those people, uh, people that do not know what gestalt is, could you please explain? Well, the word gestalt comes from the German word gestalt or gestalt, and I'm not sure the exact way uh, it's said in the original, but it, it means holistic, but not holistic like in the health food sense, you know, holistic foods mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It just means something more like, it, it's a school of psychology that goes back to um, one of the, its founder, uh, you know, like Sigmund Freud is the founder of psychoanalysis as a school of psychotherapy. It's one of the talking therapies, but Fritz Perls is his name. Um, he founded it. He was influenced significantly by Zen and other forms of Asian philosophy, but he was also a psychologist, and he kind of put it together where the focus is on the whole person. So it's not just on, like say, by contrast with psychoanalysis, which largely presupposes that most people's neuros neur neuroses and other psychopathologies occurred in childhood. So a lot of it is to try to get you to go back and think about your relationship with your mom when you were a kid and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, this is more present-centered, therefore the Zen influence. Um, and it, it's like they'll take into consideration even just ordinary things like your difficulty paying your rent or whatever, you know, right. your diet, wh whatever seems to come up in the session. Like the person, there's that thing about Maslow's peer, hierarchy of needs. I don't know if you took a psych class and you learned about that. That's cool. but yeah, yeah, a long time ago. But let's like that, that concept is that we have <laughs> a shifting coalition of internal needs and whichever one is the most pressing is the one that comes to the surface. Right? So if you're really hungry, you're not going to be trying to lie on a couch and talk about your mom when you were a kid. You need to get food, right? So whatever the different things are that will manifest when a person comes into the session, that must be the most important thing that they're dealing with, right? Gestalt adopts that. They adopt a lot of stuff. It's very eclectic, the style. But it's mostly whatever arises in the session, the Gestalt psychotherapist will try to just address that with an open mind and approach it with a kind of what do they call hypotheses or experiments? Well, it'll uh, based on it's mostly clinical based, so it's something that the therapist cultivates skill from seeing clients over and over again. There's a lot of training with clients. When I was in the school, I did two years out of the three-year program. Mm -hmm. First year, you do a lot of work as the client, so you have to be in counseling a lot, and you do it in the workshops. We would do you know, watch each other in sessions, you know, dealing with um, a skilled clinician who's goes put you through the process but you you cultivate these skills so that by the time you're doing it in the second year you have to have clients and it's under supervision but um just even by after doing it for one year in the training by the second year you get a sense of 
this kind of brainstorming approach where you'll have an instinct or a hypothesis or a hunch and you'll say, I'm going to try this on with the client. Mm -hmm. What about this? And you experiment with the technique or whatever and it either works or it doesn't work. Right? So it's like a very fluid, almost hippie-ish thing. I mean, I think Fritz Perls is somebody whose heyday was in the 60s and early 70s. So gotcha. whatever. So that's the training. That's what Gestalt is. It's a name for a, a, like cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of psycho. It's, a, it's another talking therapy. Gestalt therapy is one of the talking therapies like psychoanalysis. So that's what Gestalt is. Gotcha. And you didn't finish? I did two years out of three. And in between the second and the third year, mm -hmm. I got hired as a full-timer at Kingsborough Community College, which is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. Philosophy jobs, you could have 300 people applying for one position. And a lot of those people, unlike me, didn't have to work full-time throughout undergrad and grad school. You know, they had trusts and stuff like that. And uh, they had publications before they even graduated, you know, right. this kind of thing. So it's very competitive. So I got, a, I got a job offer and I took it, A. At the same time, I could have done both. But it was expensive, the Gestalt School. And the bigger factor was New York State changed its licensing requirements. Now, this was an inst a training institute mm -hmm. that um, prior to the law changing, these uh, training institutes, their faculty were all advanced people with PhDs or MSWs in, psycho you know, in um, social work. That Those are people who get paid from even insurance companies to see clients as psychotherapists. I don't know if you knew that, but someone no. with an MSW can mm -hmm. be a psychotherapist and collect insurance for it. Um, or otherwise, it's a, a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist who has a PhD. Um, but these training institutes... If they, they, mostly when people would finish their PhD or their MSW, um, they could start seeing clients, but if they wanted to get really good training in clinical work, working mm -hmm. with clients, they would go to a training institute, um, like the Gestalt Institute, gotcha. and, and, and get immersion training so that by the time they're seeing clients, they're getting a lot of support on how to actually work with clients. Mm -hmm. So that's a training institute. Now, the training institutes were allowed to certify me at the time they'd have to accept me. And they would only accept you if you had something like a theology degree because the theology people do counseling. Right. Or a degree in something like philosophy of mind. And I had a lot of work in philosophy of psychology, philosophy of mind, and all that stuff. So you have to apply. They look at you and uh, decide whether or not they're going to let you in the program. So if they let you in and then you complete the program, they would certify you. And then you could practice right. uh, legally in the state of New York. Um, but when they changed the law, they changed the law that you could no longer do that. You had to have an MSW or a PhD and, uh, in psychology. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, okay. and I'm like, I am not going for another PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I was done. And, uh, yeah, and I got a, a full tenure track job, and I just said, all right, you know. I kept seeing you, you have to be a client when you're in the program. And right. I found it so useful that I kept doing it, even though I stopped going to the program. And I've gone on and off for years. I'll go for two years and stop for a year or two and I'll go back. I find it very helpful um, just to, to have that kind of opportunity to do that kind of work. So therapy for the sane, like I said, mm -hmm. it's unfair, that phrase, to talking therapies because – that implies that those people are not sane. Right. But uh, they are. <laughs> Some people are not. People who are not sane usually don't go for talking therapy as their primary source of assistance. They get medication, and they do that. <laughs> right. They get okay. follow-ups and checkups. 
yeah. based on. Yeah, they have their blood work, they're t you know, taking meds, you okay. know, people who have serious psychopathologies that are chemical in nature, like manic depression and schizophrenia and things like that. Now, I did want to ask you, you mentioned that, uh, well... Oh, wait, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Mm. Um, so, just about the um, philosophical counseling thing. Yeah. I have clients, and I, 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 not that many, but, you know, because I'm too busy. I, I get many offers that I turn down, but mm -hmm. I, I do a few of them just because I like to do it. And uh, the ones that I've taken on already that I like, I keep with them. And sometimes they come and go just like I come and go. Um, one of them is a, a licensed psychologist um, who wanted a different approach other than from another psychologist. So she looked me up. I mean, I'm listed in psychology today. Uh, you know, when you go and find a therapist. Right. But it says philosophical counseling. I've got, I had a guy contact me from California who was in IT. I forget what he, I don't remember what, what his issues were, but I worked with him for a while. I had a guy from Australia. So that's what the Zoom is great for. Mm -hmm. um, you get to see people all over the world and, uh, and help them. And um, yeah, it's a lot. You know, and I, I, on my website, if you might have noticed that I ask people that you could ask me a question there and I'll be happy to do it for free, just in typed, mm -hmm. you know, um, or people really need to, they can contact me and um, that sort of thing. I mean, right. I really yeah. agree with that because in most cases, you know, sometimes you can't solve a riddle by yourself. So you need a team exactly. and you need some insight. And when you find that particular breakthrough to get over that, um, that block, it, it does tremendous things down the line, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes just the shift in perspective, somebody else's take on your issue, solved. Yeah. <laughs> And it could be a simple practical thing. That's why the Gestalt, I love the Gestalt approach. Sometimes my Gestalt therapist, who I was with for many years, um, would like just help me do some simple logistic thing with my scheduling or something. You know, yeah. so, like, well, she'd ask me, like, well, how, are you, how are you scheduling that? How, you know, I'm saying I'm too busy. And she'd actually help me figure out how to schedule my day better, mm -hmm. right? But that's the Gestalt attitude of like, that's part of you. That's part of your life. Like, okay, where's the problem? The problem is you don't know how to use a damn agenda, you know, or, or the calendar on your phone, whatever. Some simple thing could be the solution to your problem. Then you realize that was it. So much stress went down, you know? <laughs> I agree with both of you because um, maybe uh, Dr. Perry did not want to share, uh, but I'm completely okay with this, that um, you were my um, psychotherapist on and off, and this philosophical counselor. Philosophical, sure, and uh, I can't call myself a psychotherapist. It's illegal, <laughs> okay, right? Um, but this podcast would not have happened if it wasn't an evening of conversations with you. So it did help me get over that little hump and then start this with you. So well, you made they, the decision, but you're talking it through with me did play a role. Exactly. Exactly, and um, I am not taking the responsibility for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little bit you are because you did agree to be no, the I first am. guest. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to uh, you mentioned that it's difficult to get uh, to obtain a job in this um, in line of work field, in, right. in, the, in your field, and um, you certainly had other options you um, have been around I, I do want to go back to your uh, you know 
the eight years you took off between school. But um, you had you had legal. You had you're you're a very bright guy. You had other options. What made you go into philosophy? And you did mention some of you know uh, some events that led you here. But then what made you go into teaching philosophy? And you know, twenty thirty years later, um, well twenty years later, in this field, are you are you content? Thirty years later, I started teaching in nineteen ninety one. When okay. I was in grad school, after one year of grad school, Brooklyn wow. College hired me as an adjunct wow. to start teaching uh, intro classes. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of happened. I mean, look, the decision was to go into philosophy PhD program with the knowledge that, as Professor Jerome Stolnitz, my first philosophy teacher and mentor, said, you can become a lawyer or you could teach philosophy. Uh, but really, most people nowadays think that, like, in general, you can get any kind of liberal arts degree and do almost anything, right? But um, based on maybe the way that my father had convinced me that you need to know what you're doing going right. forward, right? Uh, you never quit one job without, you know, having another one lined up. Well, I never, I didn't follow that advice when I was younger, but as I got older, I did follow that. Right. All the things that he told me that I resisted when I was younger, mm -hmm. I wound up realizing that that's really good advice and I started <laughs> listening to him. Um, but so, like, I, I kind of had it in my mind once I decided to go to grad school in philosophy that I would probably teach philosophy, and I was looking forward to it. I loved taking philosophy classes. I loved majoring in it. Um, the whole time I was doing that as an undergrad, except for like the final semester, by, the, by your graduating semester you had to have made up your mind so you could apply to grad school. So, but in my last year I, I made that decision. I, I spent many, many hours, like I said, deliberating law school, grad school, law school, grad school, and I finally chose grad school. But like that was, that was made with the, the thought that I will become a philosophy professor. Um, when I was almost done with grad school. I was in the middle of my um, dissertation when I went through a divorce and in the process of it, actually it wasn't really the, um, the stress of the marriage falling apart, although I know that that played a role, but what happened is I got into a car accident um, while I was uh, driving a tractor trailer. I was on my way home from work and um, got into a car accident and I had like three bulging discs in my neck and three herniated discs in my lower back. I couldn't turn my head from side to side for a long time. I had to turn my whole body to look from side to side. I had all kinds of therapy. It took me months to recover, but in the first I had to quit my job. My boss, the truck driving guy, he wanted to kill me because in the winter, you need your, it was delivering fuel oil. I went back to that company, by the way. Well, when I was in the process of getting um, my divorce, when I left my marriage, I went and moved in with my father who um, encouraged me to just keep giving, you know, your wife and children, all the money that you were already giving them, don't give me anything. I don't need anything from you. Um, you know, I've been paying the rent here, whatever, and uh, just stay with me and, until you figure out, you know, the next step. I lived with him for a year, driving a truck, and then he died. And um, I was still teaching, 
it was the truck driving was not my boss let me work a number of, an, enough hours or whatever but um i couldn't do both uh i've got actually i think i just messed up on the time right i was teaching i was just teaching that's what it was mm -hmm. and when my father died i realized i i had to drive i had to make more money because the adjunct part-time adjuncts are part-timers they only get a couple of classes and they don't make that much money um, but me and my ex, we were both adjuncts. Between the two of us, we made enough money to get by. But And I was giving her all that when I was living with my father. But when he died, I suddenly had to pay his rent and all right. the bills. And so I was like, oh, so I had to go back to driving a truck. My old boss, the tractor trailer guy with the fuel oil. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that before when we were talking informally. I don't think that was in the recording. No. But yeah. Oh, when I said I was on top of the truck, remember? Right. That you, was how I got going to college. But this is this was in the year 1999. Or no, yeah, 1999, 2000-ish. 1999, when I separated from my wife, I was living with my father, and he died uh, in the first week of January of 2001, which is easy to remember because 9-11 was 2001, and he right. didn't get to see that. Um, I had to go back. I had to go back to driving a truck full time, you know, full time, so I could pay my way. And um, I had finished all my courses in grad school, took all my exams, comprehensive exams, and I was writing my dissertation. I had to stop all of that and um, work full time driving a truck, and that was like six, seven days a week in the winter. And then in the summers, my same boss had this cross country thing with tractor trailers, picking up big spools of electrical conduit cable out in southern Illinois, right near St. Louis, mm -hmm. uh, and bringing them to Astoria, Queens, to the Con Ed plant, and then bring the empty big spools back to Illinois. And this was the, what I would do once or twice a week in the summer. Um, I lost my train of thought, like, why I'm going into all this. Um, where were we? Well, how did you get into... Uh, oh, philosophy. Yes. Right. So so that's just part of it. Like, um, I knew that I would be teaching philosophy, but... Oh, yes. So that's what it is. When I got that car accident, that was... That's what's made me stop working as a truck driver. I couldn't climb in and out of the truck and yank a hose into people's backyards anymore. I was in bad shape for months. I got depressed. I couldn't exercise. I was physically depressed. I didn't realize what it was. But um, one of my friends from grad school, uh, we were study partners and good friends. Her name was Beth Hasrick. Um, she passed away. But um, really sweet woman. At the time, she was already, she had gone through the Gestalt psychotherapy training program, was a practicing psychotherapist, and was even on the faculty at the New York um, I forget what it's called, the Gestalt Center for Psychotherapy and Training in, in Manhattan. And so I called her up and I said, you know, I know you're into the Gestalt therapy thing. And I was always into, I, I liked the idea if I was ever going to go for some kind of therapy, it would be Gestalt because one of my meditation teachers, Ramdas, famous character, um, had mentioned that he, he was, had a very favorable attitude about Gestalt therapy. And I remember him teaching us some little Gestalt thing where you just look at the other person, you look at each other and stare at each other, and you just sit there without talking just so that you get over the discomfort of making eye contact with a person and thinking that you need to speak. It was a kind of weird little psychological experiment that we did. And I remember thinking that was interesting. It was powerful. And so and my, I knew my friend Beth was a Gestalt therapy teacher, so I called her up and... Um, 
she said, look, let's set up an appointment. Why don't you come in and we'll have like an informal intake interview. I told her I'm going through a divorce. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't feel good. I'm lying in bed all day, blah, blah, blah. I didn't even realize it. But after I had my first session, the therapist, um, my first therapist at the time, he said to me, you know, you're actually, you're suffering from depression. He said, it's probably because of the accident and the divorce, but maybe the big, the bigger part of it is the accident. You're physically ill. You know, you don't have energy. You're normally a type A person and you can't move around. You can't do anything. And uh, just realizing that made it easier for me. That was that shift immediately. Like, oh, okay, it's, it's my body. Uh, yeah, I, I, I need, I need a, like, I have a busy hand. I need a glove that you can move, right. you know? I couldn't hardly move. So I was depressed physically <laughs> and mentally. So... That was at the time, and um, that's when I thought, okay, that shifted something for me, and I really thought, wow, this Gestalt stuff, really, like, I remember what Ramdas had said, and I thought, this is, you know, like you said earlier, right, it, 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 this can be very meaningful, and the slightest little insight could shift something. My whole attitude changed once I realized that as my health improves, I'll be fine. Um, but then I also got a lot of help dealing with the difficulties of all the conflict that happened to emerge in the process of my divorce. And I fell in love with it. And my therapist kept telling me, you are an excellent client. You're the best client. I've been teaching. And he, he was one of the faculty members also at the Gestalt Center. Mm -hmm. I've been teaching and I've been seeing clients for like 30 years or something. He's, you are the most ripe client that I've ever had. Like everything that I try to do with you, it works, right? <laughs> why did you? Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. Did, did it might be because ever... I have a lifetime of practicing meditation, which heightens, and I'm a philosopher by nature right. and by training, so I have the kind of cognitive framework and reference base for which everything that he would bring to the table made sense to me intuitively. So, and I, I had faith in the process, maybe because of Ram Dass and because feedback loop. The more I tried, the more it worked. So the more eager I was to try and grow, um, you know, and improve my lot. And so I think that was why it worked for me so well. But after, a, I don't know, maybe 10 sessions, because it was an initial suggestion of 10 sessions. After 10 sessions, he said to me, okay, listen, you came in with a recommendation of 10 sessions to deal with your depression and conflicts dealing with your um, ex-wife, well, we weren't divorced yet, but he said, and I think that you've gotten over your difficulties dealing with this, like about 80%. He said, my therapist, when I first went in for counseling, gave me uh, a kind of pass to leave when she said to me, I was about 80% cured. So I want to make the same suggestion to you. Mm. He said, we don't like to keep people in Gestalt counseling. We like to fix them and send them on their way. It's hopefully a short-term therapy. He said, but I'm sure it's very supportive for you and I'll leave it up to you. If you want to come back for another 10 or just a couple of more or whatever, that's fine, but you could stop now, whatever. I did 10 more because I loved it. And uh, during the process, he said to me, you know what, you so love this and you're so good at it that I think that you might actually be a really, you could probably become a really good Gestalt psychotherapist. He recommended that I go. They have a, 
a training retreat that they do twice a year, one in the winter and one in the summer. They go off to some retreat center in like the Catskills or I forget, no, the Berkshires, beautiful little center. Um, and all the students go, all the faculty members go, and they have like intensive client training, like sessions, right? And there'll be lectures and sessions and lectures and sessions. And the, the, the second year students, mm -hmm. uh, rather no, the people who finished the first year, right? This is usually only in the summer. I guess that's when it was. Who finished their first year, in their second year, they have to start seeing clients themselves. So they get to play the role of therapist for the first time at that retreat. Oh. So he, sa he explained that to me. He said, you're going to get me and the other faculty members, but you will also be able to help the, new, the students who've done a year on their maiden voyage, as they call it, and um, you know, would you like to come? And it's not that expensive. And, you know, for non-students, you know, we invite some of our clients every now and then or someone we know who we think might want to. And it'll be a way for you to figure out if this is really something that you want to do. A. B. You'll get to meet a whole bunch of other Gestalt therapists. And one of them might click with you better than me. And, you know, we want to always help you. I'm, we're not covetous. Um, right. It's part of their philosophy. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. And I went and I did it. And now I had had a kind of writer's block on my dissertation. I started out with an advisor who was reluctant to be my advisor because he felt like he didn't know enough about my subject, free will. And after he agreed, he went on sabbatical for a year. And so I wrote a lot when, without any feedback from him. And then I gave him like over 100 pages. Normally you would write 20 pages, like a chapter or something given right. to your advisor. I wrote like the whole, almost the whole damn thing. Gave it to him. He didn't like the whole thing at all. Right? So like I wasted a lot of time um, going back and forth with him. We just didn't click. And um, I wasn't writing, you know? And because of, because of the truck driving and all that, right? I had been driving a truck anyway, so I right. couldn't do anything. And I didn't know if I'd ever go back to grad school to finish my PhD because I figured I'll become a Gestalt psychotherapist. It's better for me. It's good for my health. You know, that's a great career. And it's hard to get a job in philosophy, right? So uh, at that training retreat that weekend, I wrote 30 pages wow. of philosophy on my laptop. 30 pages of my dissertation. And I felt really great. Like it opened up something in me. Just doing all that depth psychology work with people, mm -hmm. it was endless, this thing of insight, insight. And like, I just, my mind started working really great. And I wrote a lot. And then I thought, I think I can do the philosophy. So when I got back, I went back to the CUNY grad school, which I dropped out of. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to try and come back. Uh, I went and spoke to the program director. I spoke to my advisor. And he said to me, well, you know what? Uh, it's very fortunate for you right now because when you left, nobody was interested in free will. But now it's all the rage. So there's a lot of stuff being written out there by big shot names. And you could, like, get some traction by engaging with and critiquing their stuff and making your own position and all that. It, like, it's a more fruitful field for you right now. Great. So I went back to grad school. <laughs> so to see this thing back, mm -hmm. I almost dropped grad school for Gestalt. And then one, I was doing both. After right. I got back into the program, I was writing well, seeing my therapist, got, taking the training, and my second year of training or whatever. 
And then they changed the law when I got hired full time. So that's how I wound up teaching philosophy permanently at Kingsborough. Kingsborough offered me the full time job. So I took it. <laughs> and that was it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, philosophers do other things. <clears throat> Some of them do. Some of them, right. you know, um, just go into IT. Some of them go into, you know, I have a friend who from the CUNY Grad Center who got hired in a tenure track job at the University of Colorado. He did two or three years. They have a very strict publishing requirement. Like every year in your tenure track line, if you don't publish something, you're out, you know, something like, it's not if it's every year, but there's a, by, you right. reach, by the time you reach, let's say year three, you have to have one article or something like a peer reviewed journal thing, whatever it was, he didn't have it. And he got out of that and he went into IT, computer programming, you know, philosophers, I've, there've been a lot of articles in the Huffington Post and all over the internet about how philosophers make great employees in almost any field because they have this lawyer-like ability Right. to analyze something from multiple perspectives, to reason very carefully. They're extremely articulate. They have high verbal IQ, you know, that sort of thing. So they can do almost anything. It's a great major for almost anybody. What do you think about um, those strict um, rules about uh, people who are in the tenure track having to publish so regularly? Do you think that we miss out on potential great, you know, modern-day philosophers that they, they kind of drop out or fall off the track because they cannot keep up or it's because really good keep up with that. Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I have mixed feelings about it, so I'm not certain what my answer is, but I'll tell you the pro and con. And it might be like not a good reason. Like those standards were held for me, so I want to make sure that they're held for others. Right. And that might be just selfishness. And uh, you know, there might be a there might be a name for that vice. That's like not a virtue. <laughs> that character. It's almost like envy or something. You know, some something like Schadenfreude or something like that. It's one of those negative things. I mean, that um, happens with like citizenship today right. or immigration. You right. Know, I we've right. discussed this. I right. feel very similar. Right. About so it, I'm but. not sure. Like I have high standards too. Right. I have very high standards, but I'm also a very compassionate person. And based on what I told you earlier, that I think everybody has the potential for philosophy. Mm -hmm. If somebody makes it through a PhD program, and they're in a tenure track line, and they miss the clock, right? Um, do they have the potential or not? Their colleagues who are on the committee that evaluates them should be able to know by the time that they've finished their tenure clock whether or not they have the ability, even if they haven't gotten that article into print yet, mm -hmm. because it takes years sometimes, one to two years, that you, you're not allowed to submit. It's a norm in my field, in most of academia. I, I don't know if it's only my own. I think it might be almost all peer-reviewed journals I know it's true in philosophy. I'm not certain if it applies to the other fields. But when you submit an article to be considered for publication, you're not supposed to submit it to more than one journal at a time. You have to wait to get a rejection letter from journal A before you could submit it to journal B. And it could take six months to a year before journal A gives you an answer. Okay? So, you know, think about the tenure clock. They want you to have a publication by a certain time. But technically, there should be people in your department who are on your hiring and promotion committee who could look at that article and read it and tell whether or not it's scholarly enough, even if it's not published. But that's not the norm. It's just not the norm, right? And colleges are bureaucratic institutions, and they all become 
you know, rule worshipers. Mm -hmm. These are the rules. And they're legalistic institutions, too, because there are union contracts and everything, so things have to go by the rules, and lawsuits and grievances are based on violations of the rules. And so if I am lenient toward you, but I'm not lenient toward you, right, then this question about my making the judgments about your scholarship positively, but his negatively, if they're subjective, they're based on me. I am not a peer-reviewing journal. I'm just a colleague of yours, and colleagues have subjective attitudes. You're my friend. I don't like him, that kind of thing. So there are objective reasons why you want to keep with objective standards. I have a particular question of my own. Um, you know, uh, people in life go through certain mishaps. Um, in a scenario, like let's just say if they... Um, got COVID or something specifically had happened, uh, whether they had a lost one or something like that. Right. Um, is there like an appeal process to extend this particular um, validation, whether or not they have to submit something like this? Yeah. So look, I'm a grievance counselor on my campus. Mm -hmm. um, by, by grievance, we don't mean when death happens. We mean if somebody feels like they've been mistreated because uh, I'm a union delegate and my union's local chapter on my campus appointed me as the grievance counselor. So if a faculty member has a complaint, they'll come to me. Unless if they're in my department, then I can't represent them. Then they have to go straight to the union who will represent them. But um, so I, I've seen records of previous grievances and whatnot where somebody was not reappointed. So each year that you're on a tenure track, it used to be five years. Um, when I when I came up it changed the year that I went on tenure track to seven years But they gave us those of us who were on the cusp the choice to stick with the five-year thing because that was what was in place Just when they hired us or up for the seven-year thing, which is more of a guarantee You got two more years, but then of course the longer you take your salary does, doesn't go up for that extra two years Right once you get tenure you get a little bump right. in your raise, right? So I picked the five-year one, and fortunately for me, I did fine. But there was a, a faculty member who had a fire, and their house burnt down. All their work was destroyed, their computers, everything. It was a huge setback. That person was non-reappointed. So each year that you're on a tenure clock, there are committees in your department. It's called the P&B, Personnel and Budget Committee. They're usually elected, and... I'm on the one in mine, but so they decide, they look at all the files of all the people in the department who are on tenure track. What year are you in? You're going from first year to second year. There's criteria for that. You're going from second year to third year. There's criteria for that. You know, maybe by the fourth year, you should have one publication, right? Or if not, at least a letter of acceptance from a peer-reviewed journal and so on. So this person didn't satisfy the criteria, but had a fire. They were non-reappointed. They appealed. There's an appeals committee. The appeals committee considered it. There was evidence of it. It was obviously, a, you know, a real thing. And they were reappointed. Okay. So, yeah, there are processes. Uh, and then there's grievances, too. If the, Even if somebody fails to win on appeal, then the grievance goes to another step. Usually the, the, the college will say no, just as a formal, it's kind of an instinctive you know, prove your case, and then it'll go to a step step two, which is um, a formal hearing where you present. It's almost like disclosure in the legal world where you present all your documentation, exhibits, evidence, and everything. And then 
if the college doesn't accept then, and it rarely does, but sometimes it does, uh, then it goes to step three, which is the American Arbitration Association. So those are independent people who look at the case and make a decision that's binding, regardless of who wins or loses. Um, there are ways around that too. And um, the union might choose not to go to arbitration if they think the case is frivolous or that they can't win because it's gonna cost them money. And they might just say, there's just no way you're gonna win, mm -hmm. right? You can hire a lawyer on your own, but we can't, we can't spend the money on that. Um, but even if they think you're gonna lose, if they think it's an important case that's worth fighting, they'll do it just to make it part of the legal record, you know, this kind of thing, whatever. So it's pretty complicated. There are safety mechanisms in place, but these old entrenched institutions, if you've worked in any kind of big bureaucracy ever, you know, they're problematic. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm glad that you said all that, but uh, I guess I am because I did not know that. Um, I had an issue just from the get-go of what, what about the possibility of a talented future philosopher not getting to become or do what he has to do because of this, uh, these guidelines for the tenure track. After listening to all that, it seems like there's just more and more bureaucratic stops um, for someone to actually get their work out there. It brings me to a different question. Everything that you've said is mainstream academia and how things have been done for so long. Right. Can there be modern-day philosophers who have not gone this route? And I know you may have a feeling about this, especially since um, you know, you've done it. So if someone else, uh, for them to get the recognition or to get their work out there, it should also go through this process. Um, it's almost like paying your dues. Um, but what about someone who didn't go to school, who didn't have the opportunity to go to school? Or even if they did, they didn't. You know, and you can relate to that certainly, um, at least in the right. beginning, or at the early stages of your life. Can they still be a philosopher? Can they be considered a philosopher? Or are they, because they don't have the credentials. main credentials, um, are, do their thoughts not matter? Or do they not have value? Um, right. so, and I think you're well, in a very interesting... philosophy. There you thing. go. Yeah. Yeah. So... Right. What's well, but what you're talking about is slightly different from the street philosophy thing because you're wondering whether or not somebody can become a recognized philosopher mm -hmm. with a public voice who's can, capable of authoring books and articles that appear in, in peer-reviewed philosophy journals and stuff like that right. without cred any credentials at all. And the answer is yes. But, I mean, you, you'll see every now and then an article in even one of the top philosophy journals that normally on the first page or on the last page, it'll say the author's name and the name of the institution that they're affiliated with, Princeton, right. Brooklyn College, whatever it is. But sometimes it'll say independent scholar. So uh, if you submit really good philosophical writing to a journal, it's supposed to be anonymous. The, they have, if it's peer-reviewed, I mean, there are some peer-reviewed journals that are not anonymous, and the editor will just say, we really trust our, ourselves and our editors, um, you know, that we don't have to um, hide your name. 
but most of them, they ask you to submit your document, whether it's a Word document, a PDF, or whatever, removing all references to yourself. So even citations to your work that will occur in the bibliography should be removed, right? And just keep a placeholder there saying author reference number one or something. Then you put okay. them back in later if it's accepted. So, and then they send those out to peer <clears throat> reviewers um, who are experts in that field to review it. And I'm a reviewer for a number of different journals, and I will get the articles, and I will write my feedback, and I would be reader A or reader B, and like the author will get back the feedback. Some journals are so busy that it's just thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs up with some work, right? Or, or just up and down, you know? It depends yeah, yeah. on the journal. Um, or with, uh, accepted with the following revisions made, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so the reviewers don't know what your credentials are, so you could certainly get your articles published in peer-reviewed journals. If you got enough of those published, those would be your credentials if you tried to approach a publisher who's a book publisher. Book publishing is much more challenging. Um, but you would send uh, a book proposal to a book publisher with whatever your credentials are. Even if you're an independent scholar, it doesn't matter. But uh, certainly if you're an independent scholar and you want to try to sell a, a, you know, get a philosophy book in print, I would encourage you to try to get at least one or two articles in print in a peer-reviewed journal first, and then that's your evidence uh, of your credentials, um, that you would submit that with your proposal to a book publisher, along with an outline and maybe a sample chapter or two. Some of them want a whole manuscript for the whole book before they'll review it. But the good thing about philosophy book publishing, unlike um, like um, fiction, or something like that, you know, screenplays mm -hmm. and things like that. For fiction, novels, screenplays, things like that, um, you need to have an agent, right. somebody who will introduce you to a publisher. If you don't have an agent, nobody will look at your work. And it's hard to get an agent if you're not published. It's a catch-22. Right. Unless you have really good friends with somebody who has an agent, mm -hmm. and then they persuade their friend agent to look at your work. Right, <laughs> Or if you have a really stellar reputation in philosophy as a book publisher in philosophy that you've written really good books that have become kind of uh, bestsellers in philosophy, then you might, you might be able to, when they see your name, so if you already have, but if you're already successful, right, right. You, then you could cross over into fiction or whatever. So like big shot philosophers like Sam Harris, well actually Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, not a philosopher, but he is bachelor's was in philosophy. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're an intellectual in any other field and you have any kind of reputation, it's easier for you to try to get a book into print regardless of where it is. Gotcha. And it is yeah. But in philosophy, it's actually easier because you don't have this agent thing and you don't have to have a reputation already. If the book looks good to the publisher and they think there's a market for it, they'll publish it. Th that definitely sounds much better because in, in, initially, when you're describing this, I'm like, okay, wow, there are so many bureaucratic. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's pauses. to get tenure. That's to get Got tenure. It. Yeah, no, um, this seems like a more of a reasonable approach to it, and the anonymity, I definitely, you know, think, will encourage more people to send uh, stuff out there. And um, 
I'm an idiot. I'm not sending articles anywhere. <laughs> but for philosophers, you're far from that, an idiot, Niaz. <laughs> that's kind of you'd say. But um, you uh, got into my top honors class, and you got an A in that class. So that's all I have to say about you being an idiot. Well, thank you. Um, I uh, the top I, honors class in the college, by the way. Right. Well, at the time, anyway. I appreciate you saying that, but I don't think I'll be writing any philosophical articles trying to get them published. <laughs> but for those of you who are out there, there are ways to do this. Uh, and if you're interested, um, uh, you don't have to have a philosophical degree uh, if you have thoughts in your mind that you think are scholarly and you want to publish them. Um, speaking of books, Let I... Let me interrupt you. Yeah. Um, not just philosophy. Um, people are amateurs who love certain subjects, right? Like... Mm -hmm. um, there was a fellow named Benjamin Lee Worf, W-H-O-R-F, who wrote a book called Language, Thought, and Reality. It's a very philosophical book, but I, I would say that the category of it is philosophy of language and linguistics. I think he was a fireman or something like that, but he was very well read, and he happened to be like kind of amateur linguist slash, or like a kind of anthropological linguist, or linguistic <coughs> anthropology, or whatever you call it. It was a fascinating book. Um, What's the book called again? Language, Thought, and Reality. Benjamin Lee Worf, W-H-O-R-F. It's a classic in philosophy of language and in linguistics. His theories were really interesting. Um, and I forget one of the other people who, um, there's a hypothesis named after him and someone else. It's the something or other Worf hypothesis, but I, I can't remember the name of the other guy. Almost anybody who takes a grad-level course in philosophy of language or linguistics will know about him. It might even be assigned. Um, but I remember reading that book as an undergraduate. My speech teacher, who was, you know, like a Ph.D. in linguistics or something like that at Lehman College, mentioned the book in class, mm -hmm. and I just went and read it out of interest. That's the kind of student I was. And I, I was like, whoa, that book was really phenomenally um, deeply thought out and interestingly argued. He, he had weird hypotheses in it. I read it during the semester, and I remember asking the speech teacher if he thought that these hypotheses were credible because they seemed outlandish to me. And he said, no, he's a highly respected man. Um, you know, a lot of people are writing about his ideas. One of them was about Sanskrit. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you remember any of the hypotheses? The, it, Sanskrit, that it he believed that Sanskrit was an exceptionally advanced language grammatically mm -hmm. uh, and syntax syntactically and semantically, and that a large part of the language was consciously designed. That was one of his hypotheses. That was so communicative and well-organized that he believed that it was desi significantly designed intentionally and consciously, like Esperanto, that mm -hmm. language that was created by linguists mm -hmm. back in the 19-something or others, um, to try to be a universal language. Another one was that the Hopi, the language of the Hopi Indians, mm -hmm. had tenses in them, in, in the language that we don't have, and that explained their different conceptions of cause and effect connected with the rain dance. They had a different conception of time according to which you're not raining now, you're not dancing the rain dance now to make it rain tomorrow. They had some kind of huh. different metaphysics of time that was structured in their grammar and everything. And I remember thinking that I didn't completely understand it, 
you know, because I, I don't think that way. But right. I remember thinking that the argument on its face was plausible and interesting. So I, I would ask the speech teacher as I was reading these things, do you think that that thing he said about the Hopi, you know, the Sanskrit and everything? He said, yeah, no, it makes sense to me. He said, I'm not an expert in those areas, you know, but it's a, it's a thought-provoking book. Yeah, that actually... Oh, one more thing. Yeah. One more thing. That, like, the Inuit, the mm -hmm. natives of the Arctic region, yep. not just in, in, in the Western Hemisphere, you know, all around the globe, oh, yeah. um, they have... <clears throat> something like in most inuit languages they have something like over 50 different words for s types of snow we have just two or three or four or five six packing snow or you were talking about snow before the podcast <laughs> i won't remind you what that was but uh right but like they live in a snowy world so they make these diff they carve up their universe in conceptual ways remember what i said about concepts that mm -hmm. are that have to fit causally with the environment they capture some cause effect relationship in the environment they're causally efficient concepts in their domain. They make houses out of ice and whatnot. You know, there's ice that you could break through easily. And what, I don't know what the distinctions are. I don't remember. It was too long ago. But then they also, he also noted that the natives in the Amazon, the indigenous peoples have hundreds of different words for different kinds of parrots, but they don't have the word parrot or the word bird, right? They don't need it. Wow. So there's this pragmatism that determines the concepts that a group of, you know, a, a linguistic community in a certain kind of ecosystem, you know, capture the reality in that system. It was like a lot of fascinating hypotheses in that book. Um, but what's interesting about it is the metaphysics. So language, thought, and reality. Language is just the clothing or the codes. Language is sounds that encode concepts. That's what words are. They're ways to convey concepts. So language and thought. Language is a shadow of thought, <laughs> right? And then reality is the test. It, it, is my conceptual scheme capturing reality? Language, thought, and reality. So that's, yeah, this is an amateur, a fireman or something. Right. So, I mean, you know, you... You love something, you study it, you read about it your whole life. Uh, you know, you can write a book about it. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the Hopi Indians and um, their concepts that are kind of now lost because you it's not your practice area, so you don't understand it fully. Um, there's been hundreds, thousands of cultures that have disappeared over, the, over right. history. And right. do you, and I know that you are you know, pretty well read and you definitely have shown interest and taken interest in other cultures philosophy. I know in the past we've discuss, discussed Sufism, we dis, uh, discussed various uh, philosophies coming out of Asia. Um, what's your, where does it all come together for you? You know, because you obviously follow one, you know, well, let me ask this, do you follow one form of philosophy or one uh, philosophy that comes from a uh, certain re uh, region? Or is it kind of all-encompassing for you? Um, and do you create your own kind of beliefs based on your understanding from all different cultures, philosophies? Good, really good question. Um, I'll first start with an analogy. When I was a martial arts student, my first karate teacher reminds me of that crazy, militant, aggressive 
karate teacher in the movie series Karate Kid, yeah. right? Uh, my first karate teacher was Cobra like, Kai. Yeah, <laughs> he was like that, Cobra Kai, right? I forget that guy's name, but uh, with the headband, you know. Who, who is it, Mikey? Uh, <laughs> he, so, he, he made a comeback, too, um, he, doing a Netflix show. Yeah, it's a Netflix show that's really popular now. Who is that guy's name? Um, well, 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 yeah, he can, looks that up. Yeah. I'll keep, keep telling the story. I wouldn't say my first karate teacher was crazy or anything. No, but he was kind of really aggressive and mm -hmm. kind of militant, like a drill sergeant, like really like a military guy, you know, very strong um, guy. And um, like he would have us on our, you know, doing knuckle push-ups. And if, if we didn't look strong and fierce enough, he'd get down next to us doing knuckle push-ups and he'd yell at you like three inches away from your face the tired you get, the harder you fight, right? <laughs> and he, he'd make you do more, right? Like the weaker you got, the mm -hmm. more disciplinary, like laps around the gym or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. you name it, jumping right. jacks. Like he would punish us for our weaknesses mm -hmm. with more grueling disciplines. And um, so, but after a year, you know, I bought, a, I bought a year's package to like save money on the lessons, right? Mm -hmm. But like, you know, Shortly after, you know, I got a sense of what he was really like. Like when you go and watch a class, mm -hmm. they know that you're not somebody who's an uncle of the student, whatever, you're a potential customer. Whenever there's somebody in the audience, right. the karate teacher thinks potential customer and they put the class on a certain way. Right, right, of course. Then after you sign up for a year, then you find out, oh, he's like that Cobra Kai guy, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> And I gave him a year without a, you know, an escape clause. So right. I did my year, uh -huh. and then I went shopping around. I tried different karate schools, one after another. Each one would ask you as a student to demonstrate something that you learned, and then they would correct you and show right. you that their way was the right way. And they had all kinds of rationalizations for why their way of doing X is better than your your karate teacher was, or whatever. just to try to break you down and make you think that, well, well, they know something. Wow, I was doing it the wrong way or whatever. You know, make you insecure, and then mm -hmm. you think you're going to learn, and you sign up. Similarly, meditation teachers, I've had many of them, and yoga teachers, and it's kind of the same thing. Yeah with different meditation teachers, different yoga teachers, different martial arts teachers, and then so also with different philosophy teachers, right? You know, they all have their biases and their prejudices. And um, so I learned, like, I don't know where I should say I finally learned this, but I learned early on in my journey of all those different things, meditation, yoga, martial arts, philosophy, like to approach things like a bumblebee, and they're all like different flowers and I'll get a little pollen from this one and a little pollen from that one and I'll make my own honey. You know, that's my okay. attitude. I'm, I don't care where it comes from. It. Yeah, if there's something worth learning, <clears throat> I'll take it. You know, otherwise I'll take what I like and leave the rest behind. Um, so like I recently uh, got engaged in a conversation online with somebody who posted something that like the Greek Orthodox Church recently proclaimed that yoga was inconsistent with the Greek Orthodox Christianity. What? Why yeah. is that? Yeah. And that was my initial reaction, too, um, that I had for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, here's the thing. If you just take yoga as a kind of exercises, that's like saying Pilates or aerobics is mm -hmm. inconsistent with Greek Orthodox Christianity, right? Right. Um, 
and, and many yoga, most yoga classes are taught as exercise classes. So they are consistent with anything. But a lot of them are a kind of gateway into Hinduism or Buddhism gotcha. and that kind of thing. And depending on your yoga teacher, right, Om, uh, you know, you're chanting a Sanskrit mantra. Right. Right. Some of them don't do that. Some of them are completely in English, but mm -hmm. some of them have got the incense and they've got statues of Ganesh and Shiva and all right. these, you know, deities from another religion. And namaste is a wonderful, sweet thing. It just pretty much means hello or goodbye. Or technically, I bow to that in you, which is the same as that which is within me. I do find it. Sorry to cut you off. I do find it that usually people who are not of that culture that have adopted that culture. It's a lot of white people, right. <laughs> to be honest. Right. And that, that have, they're the ones who have all the little deities and Ganesh and the incense up everywhere. Right. Usually, right. Uh, people right. from that culture are just like, oh, let's just do some yoga <laughs> and let's right. get it down to the mat. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I have friends from India and whatnot. You know, I've had these conversations with them. So, like, yeah, westernized yoga is mostly just exercise. But then there are those who are kind of Western yogis or, you know, they're right. spiritual, they're into the new age thing and all that aromatherapy and incense and they're chanting and they might have a, a Hindu teacher or something like that. And so like it can be a kind of gateway to Hinduism or to Buddhism. Right. And that's, I think, what the resistance is. So like, I mean, yoga, the yoga technically is the word is used as if it's for the third step or the third limb in Ashtanga, which is eight limbs of yoga. Mm. Ashta in Sanskrit is eight. Anga is limbs. Ashta. Ashta, Ashta, yeah. yeah. Yeah, similar in yeah. Bangladesh. Well, right? it so, all comes from Sanskrit. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. So, um, the first limb, Yama, and second limb, Niyama. Ni is a negation. So, it's kind of like do's and don'ts. It's like rules and regulations, moral rules like vegetarianism, pacifism, and truth-telling, and scriptural study, and all that. That's the moral stuff. The third limb is the asana. Uh, sana means motion or moving, and a means not, so non-moving. The postures are non-moving. You get into a posture, and you hold that posture. That's mm -hmm. an asana. So there's all these poses. That's the third limb of yoga. The fourth is pranayama, and there's that word yama again, which means control, things that you control. And life. prana is the life, life. force, yeah, breath, yeah. pran. So those are breathing exercises, which mm -hmm. is the beginning of meditative practice. But you need to be able to put your body into a meditation posture and keep it there for a long time. That's what those postures were originally designed for, to make the body flexible, healthy, limber, everything. No knots, no blockages for the chi, the life force. They don't call it chi. That's a Chinese thing, right? But it's the same concept. The right. life, the prana is like the chi. And so you, you practice all that's like qigong in, in tai chi and all that kind of thing. You get your body very, you know, open. So all the channels are open and the prana flows freely. You don't have any knots or blockages. You're healthy, you're flexible, you're strong. You put your body in a meditation posture and you withdraw your mind from your senses. You close your eyes. That's stage weight. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara in Sanskrit, which is withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, you're going within. Six, seven, eight. Dharana is focusing your mind on one point. Mm -hmm. 
That's the beginning of medit serious meditation practice. You put your mind on one thing, it wanders, you bring it back. And then dhyana, and in um, Pali, which is the language the Buddha spoke, it's jhana, and in Chinese that got turned into chan, and in Japanese it got turned into zen. The same word, Chan, etymologically. Chan, wow. Yeah, it <clears throat> means meditation. Right. So that's when you actually enter a meditative state. So when you're doing one point of this, you're practicing so that you'll get into a meditation. When you finally get your mind to penetrate to that one thing without moving, you go into a trance-like state that's called jhana. And then stage eight is samadhi, which is a kind of transcendent state of oneness. That's yoga. A yoga means gotcha. literally union. So uh, union of the soul with the all, with Brahman, <laughs> right? So, so right. the point is, asana is stage three in this eightfold, not eightfold, eight-limbed. Buddhism is eightfold. Right. It's the same thing. But this eight-limbed path towards union of the, the Atman, is it Atta or something? How do you say it? Soul. In something oh, like Atma? Um, Atta? Atta. Atta. Atta, yeah. Yeah, so in, in the Buddhist uh, dialect that the Buddha spoke, which is called Pali, it's mm -hmm. Atta also. Um, and that's the jhana instead of dhyana, D-H-Y, dhyana, you know. Chan. So, um, yeah, then chan and then zen. Um, the yoga means union of the Atman with Brahman. So, like I said, the postures are to prepare you for that journey inward so the Greek Orthodox Church is technically right um, that yeah. if you're doing yoga right, right, it's that's where it's supposed to go. Right. And if your teacher is not just uh, some exercise teacher at the gym, right, it is a gateway. So they're right about that. But even so, there are, you know, advanced Christian theologians and whatnot, like Thomas Merton and whatnot, who've taken meditation practices from Zen and whatnot and adopted it to their Christianity. But they're meditating on God, not on Brahman or on, you know, Buddhahood or something like that. Right. So you could take things from, like, in the way that I said, the, the pollen and make your own. You could do that, mm -hmm. but you could do it in a way which is consistent or which is inconsistent. If you start adopting Hindu ideas so that you have a different conception of God, where mm -hmm. God now becomes the Hindu God, over time, you're no longer really a Greek Orthodox because the Greek Orthodox don't believe in monism, which is non-dualism, whereas the yogis, well, not all of them, but some schools of thought like Vedanta, in Vedanta, which is one of the six Orthodox philosophies of Hinduism that goes back to the Vedas, the right. scriptures. Vedic cultures. Yeah, there are uh, Advaita or Advaita, mm -hmm. which means non-dualistic, right? So they believe that ultimately the soul and Brahman are the same thing. There's no distinction between the individual. God, guru, and self are one. That's a famous saying in Vedanta philosophy, right? Whereas the Christians think, no, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then there's creation. We're separate from God. We don't become God. <laughs> I have a soul. It's kind of God-like, made in the image and likeness of God, but it's distinct from God and will never become God. Whereas in certain very major forms of Hinduism, that's a yeah, yeah, it's it's non-dualistic. Right, we're all God, which is heresy in the Christian mind. And then the Buddhists, by the way, say, "Well, no, there's no God anyway." Buddha becomes kind of like a god. Well, one of the, Buddhists become like angels in Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. 
on that note, let's take a quick break. Sure. Um, I th that was great. Oh, you did pull it up. Um, okay, so, <laughs> so which one was it? Um, oh, the actor was Ralph Macchio. Yeah. Let's see. Let's look at, take a look at it. Um, I think that's a William Zabaka. Um, oh, Miyagi. Dutch. Oh, one of my Salzburg students said, "You're the Mr. Miyagi of philosophy." You are the Mr. Miyagi of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so are we? We're not recording now, right? I we are recording. No. We, we, um, oh, but. Um, okay. I think you had, I, I forget who this is, Randy, no, that's not Randy, hello. William Zabaka was the, was the guy, um, I forget who was the, um, the, 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 sen the head the leader. angry sensei. Was, yeah. was Martin Cole, who passed away. Where's, Martin Cole? There's no picture of him up there? Oh, oh that's him, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, there he is. Ah, that's, that's right. the guy, yeah. that's the guy, wait, <laughs> I can definitely get, I know the angry photos that you would. That's him, right? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. That guy. And and he did a commercial, so I don't know when he shot that commercial, but for him to pass away, it must have been recent. It must have been recent, right? Yeah, it must have been yeah, recent. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, let's see. Wax on, wax off. He didn't pass away. <laughs> What? He's from Brooklyn, New York. He didn't pass away. Didn't oh, um, well, um, under, uh, if you go to that Google search um, tab, uh -huh. um, right there mm -hmm. on Wikipedia, unless somebody changed it. Marco. Because IMDb is pretty accurate. They would not They would have updated right away. No, he's he's active. Okay. He's active. Not that oh, yet. to present. Yeah, look at this guy. <laughs> look at this guy. Still angry at this age. <laughs> All right, cool. uh, let's take a break. Uh, we'll be right back.